science. Doctor, Doctor Hannah Little, I wasn't always. You never insist on it, but you know, every now and again, I like to just give credit where credit's due. Uh, and um, Hannah uh, works at um, uh, the University of West of England, where I've been known to dabble in a bit of lecturing from time to time. Yeah. Actually, I'm supposed to turn up, aren't I, every now and again, do lectures. <laughs> and um, uh, we don't have any Andrew this week. He's uh, playing hooky. He's away somewhere in Denmark, I think. And uh, so we are going to talk with, about the stories in the news and behind the news as we, as we usually do. And um, I know, uh, Hannah, you, you picked a story you wanted to talk about, actually. Uh, oh, before that, Happy Guy Fawkes Day. Happy Guy Fawkes Day. Yeah, I no one ever says that, do they? They never say Happy Guy Fawkes Day. Or oh, Happy Bonfire. No, that's even weirder. Happy Bonfire Night. Happy Bonfire, yes. <laughs> I was thinking it's just a weird... I'm sure other countries have something like this. It's a really weird tradition where, certainly when I was a kid, we used to do more of this. You know, you build effectively an effigy of a person and set fire to them on a bonfire. It's, a, it's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, very exciting for kids, but very weird. Very weird. And I, I lived abroad for five years, and... <clears throat> Um, every single 5th of November I'd get terribly sad because I would be in a country that didn't have the bonfires and the fireworks and yeah. all the excitement. Yeah. But I'd, so I'd, I'd, I'd miss it and I'd, everyone would always say, oh, why, why, what's wrong? And I'd explain and, and, and people who aren't British find it the weirdest thing when yes. you try and explain it to them. Yes. That there was this man and he tried to blow up Parliament and they're yes. just like, why do you celebrate that? <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> and... Um, also, there's this strange thing. I was talking to someone the other day about, about this. Why Guy Fawkes? There were loads of people involved in this plot. Why this guy? I mean, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, oh, as my seat has just collapsed. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe somebody can, can tell us. But why we picked on this particular fellow to celebrate as the character we all make effigies out of, uh, most of the conspirators uh, aren't, aren't well-known characters at all i couldn't name one of them no <laughs> but there we go when i was a kid I, and now i have to admit something terrible I, I did dabble in making my own fireworks and fortunately the stuff i made it out of you can't buy it anymore it was all stuff from hardware stores you know ironmongers and things like that and uh, my poor parents the things i put them through i remember taking a bird's custard tin packed full of this stuff that I'd made, which I will not reveal, put a little wick in it. I was about 11 years old, it, uh, and, and I said, oh, this is going to be a nice flare and everything, took it down the path. I got the family to look, lit the wick, came back in the house, and we looked out of the window, <laughs> and there was this almighty explosion. <laughs> <laughs> and we went out, and Dad had laid some new paving stones down the garden, and it was sitting on one of them, and it had scorched it black and cracked it. Of course. So there you go. <laughs> That's what happens when you blow something up. So uh, don't do this at home. This is a very, very bad idea. It's uh, not good. And anyway, you shouldn't be able to get hold of the ingredients. So uh, uh, you don't do that. But anyway, have a happy and safe Guy Fawkes evening. Um, Hannah, you found a story uh, about a supercomputer. 
with a million processors. Uh, this is our Manchester University uh, website talking about this, which they, it, it's, it's actually housed at Manchester University, and they've switched this thing on for the first time. Yeah, it's very exciting. The, the world's biggest supercomputer is here in Great Britain. Um, and it's got double the number of processors that any supercomputer's ever had before. Um, and so the, th the thing that's special about this is that it's set up in such a way that it mimics the human brain. Um, so <clears throat> the, the, the processors are connected in the same way that human neurons are. Yeah. Now, people think of the brain as being terribly efficient yeah. in terms of its processing power, but actually it... It's not that efficient. It's just got a whole load of neurons in it. Oh, right. Um, so... I didn't know that. I, I, I assumed it was a very efficient machine because it, it evolved. Yes, but it's got one billion, one billion neurons, I think. Um, yeah. Or... Uh, no, a hundred billion. Hundred, hundred billion. Wrong. A hundred billion. Which is a hundred thousand million. That's a lot of neurons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they... Um, so this new computer has the capacity to perform 200 quadrillion actions simultaneously. Wow. Which is, well, I mean, just due to the sheer number of processors they've got in there. Um, and what this is going to be useful for is um, modelling brain activity and modelling brain disorders, um, like things like Parkinson's disease um, or Alzheimer's. Um, and so that's what it's useful for, rather than just being really, really good at doing enormous yeah. numbers of calculations yeah. that would be... So it's, um, it's deliberately configured a bit like a human brain, yeah, yeah. So, so that it can make, make these studies. Right, I get, I get it. So it's not, a, it's not just a supercomputer, it's a supercomputer that helps us understand the brain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I often wonder if it's a huge assumption that brains work like computers. Um. Yeah, maybe because I mean that's a, that's an analogy a lot of people make. It's yeah. like it's like a, a an electrical yeah. brain that yeah. you can use to make calculations. But actually, if you look at the way that computers um, do calculations and the way that the human brain does, um, actually, computers use way less connections and energy than than a human brain would yeah. to do the same task. Yeah. Um, because they haven't, uh, the brain wasn't. Somebody didn't sit down and design it. Maybe that's a controversial thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about computers, I know you, you, you met a megastar of the computing world, didn't you? I did. Basically, the man who really developed, who's, who's, who's behind the modern internet, or who's one of the big, big names behind the internet. Yeah, right there at the beginning, one of the inventors of the web, Tim, yeah. Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so so what, what was the occasion that you saw him? I was at... Um, does, he, does he glow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just lets off this this weird light. Um, so I was at Mozfest, which is um, the festival that the Mozilla Foundation um, hosts every single year, which is um, a festival that's all about the healthy internet. So they talk about um, uh, things such as privacy or um, uh, security online, um, social justice online, uh, what we're using the internet for, um, um, and, and, and whether that's kind of ethical and, 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 and um, socially responsible, as it were. Um, so the thing that Tim Berners-Lee was talking about was um, he's um, spent the last few years developing uh, a new project at um, MIT uh, where he is a professor. And um, so what he was talking about is this thing called SOLID, which is um, basically re... It's... It, it's um, 
it's ch- is radically changing the way that the internet currently works. So the way oh, the wow. internet currently works is we have these huge companies, so Google, Facebook, yeah. uh, Twitter, yeah. that have all of our data, and we yeah. give them all of our data. Yeah. And in, rela- in, in, in return for our data, they let us use their services. Yes. Um, but what Tim Berners-Lee has developed is something that's called Solid. Right. Um, which allows us to be in charge of our own data and have our own data follow us around the internet rather than other people having our data in right. these big yeah. in these big a, a data com- vats completely or different big models servers, yeah. yeah so it's um, so it's a decentralized model that's what we call it yeah. um, so people have all of their own data in their little server or in their own little data so, bag so I'm guessing what you would have to if you're going to design it differently because I know a lot of people write about this and worry about this the way the internet is actually developed now and, and, and this marketing model and and uh, the advertising based model and everything which requires them to know our data um, if you're going to redesign it, presumably you actually have to start another internet so that it effectively takes over. I mean, you ca- these things are so... Fu- the way it is is so foundational, isn't it, that I... you can't tinker with it. You actually have to have a brand new internet, surely. I don't think so. So the way it currently works is... Um... Google and Facebook have these massive data farms that are just lots and lots and lots of billions of servers, right? Yeah, yeah. But there's nothing stopping you or I getting our own server and running it in our own house. Mm. Um, and that, so that uses exactly the same infrastructure that Google or Facebook would be using, but on a much, much short, smaller scale. But there's nothing stopping us doing that right now and feeding into exactly the same networks. And all it requires us to do is to have enough people do that and take charge of their own data and start using platforms like Solid that would eventually make the big companies defunct. Now, how uh, viable or possible that is is another question, but we don't need to create a new infrastructure. The infrastructure is already there for us to do it. We just need enough people to do it, basically. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Well, we hope we really get some uh, support for that. (laughs) That's going to change everything. Now, um, Victoria Gill is a BBC science correspondent and uh, with her colleague, producer uh, Andrew Luckbaker, she's been to Mexico to make a documentary called Sisters of the Sacred Salamander. Nice sibilant uh, title, as they say. Um, it's about an endangered species of salamander, a salamander called an axolotl and the animal's relationship with a group of nuns who are working to conserve it. The Sisters of Immaculate Health rarely venture out of their monastery in the central central Mexican town of uh, Pazcuaro, yet they have become the most adept and successful breeders of their local species of this aquatic salamander. Scientists marvel at their axolotl breeding talents and they're now working with them to save the animal from extinction. It's a lovely, well-made documentary which you can easily find on the BBC website by googling axolotl or the Sisters of the Sacred Salamander. And I recently got the opportunity to ask Victoria Gill a few things about her approach to science journalism and the making of this documentary in particular. And I started uh, by asking her where she heard about this story. I think it's it's something of a 
a, a call to journalists to kind of get out and have conversations with people because it started with a conversation with a biologist, with a herpetologist who featured in our program, Gerardo Garcia, who works for Chester Zoo. And he's a good sort of acquaintance and contact of mine, um, has become a mate of mine um, over do- doing this particular project, actually. And just a hugely passionate guy and really cares about the, the, the sort of the slimy brown kind of unloved things that don't get quite as much concentration. PR as uh, as your pandas and your tigers and your your big iconic creatures. So um, I went to Chester Zoo to have a conversation with him and a bunch of other people about conservation stories. It's an area of science I, I cover a fair bit. Um, and this was about uh, probably about a year and a half before we made the program. And Gerardo is one of these people that whenever you have a chat with him, he's always fizzing with ideas because he's been in, you know, he's been in various parts of the globe doing really exciting things. But he told me about this new project that he was working on with his colleagues at the University of Morelia in Mexico and that they'd introduced him to this group of nuns in Patsquaro who were helping them to bring back and rescue this axolotl species, this salamander, um, from extinction. And he told me the story of how it all began because the nuns make they live right by their convent is right by this Lake Patsquaro, which is the only place where these these salamanders live. This particular species, um, and the species because of pollution and various threats had almost died out. And the reason the nuns had become involved is because they make a cough medicine out of these salamanders by some secret recipe um, and I was just absolutely captivated by this story and really wanted to get there and meet the nuns I just thought it was such a, a strange kind of concoction of a religious group and a community and a strange creature and kind of how conservation works when people come together so um, so yeah that's how it all began. So presumably it's very important for journalists like yourself to maintain relationships and conversations with uh, the people that you meet because you never know what will come out of it. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's so easy. I think um, especially in the kind of 24 hour news cycle and, and when you're sort of chained to the, the, the desk and, and the office and, you know, the phone and email Working in in any area of news, but um, you know, I work specifically in science. There's always, always stories. There's endless, you know, fascinating and important stories that you could be telling, um, and it's it, it's a real kind of discipline to just make time. Now, you uh, say in the program that you were the first journalist who was invited. How did that happen? Well, that we were really lucky with with that actually because the the whole project that where the nuns and the scientists came together to to work specifically on conservation and, and really put some investment into their their conservation breeding program for for these salamanders um that all came about because of these scientists at the university of morelia and then ultimately um the scientists and the conservationists at chester zoo um so they had got to know these uh, the sisters in Patsboro for many years for more than a decade now so and it took them a long time to to kind of break down those those barriers with the the nuns who really wanted you know they live quite this this quite insular life they they really don't leave their convent very much and i think um they were they they were not necessarily 
necessarily that trusting initially of outsiders and thought they were kind of coming in to maybe take away their animals or they were suspicious of them. But because these scientists had just spent so much time and dedication getting to know the sisters and really including them in their work and being so open, they could kind of reach across the divide for us and introduce us and vouch for us. Um, so the the sisters were, were very kind enough and happy enough to let us in. It was quite funny, actually, because when you go into the, the convent, the whole building is sort of divided into the space that is open for people to come in because they do a lot of work with um, the, the poor people in um, in Patskoro. They invite people in and feed them and, and give them a space to worship and, and interact with them. But it's very much divided into the sisters' private space. And there are actual you know barriers that you're not allowed to cross. When you go into their lobby kind of area, their sort of reception room, there's, there's almost what looks like a reception desk at a hotel and the, the, the nuns stand behind there and you're not allowed back there because that's their private home and their private space. Um, and at one point I asked uh, one of the sisters, Sister Ophelia, who was very much kind of in charge of the, the salamander farm, this conservation breeding program, if we could interview them in the garden, not realising that the garden was part of their private space. And she sort of went away, had a chat with a couple of the other sisters and, and they had a little huddle. And then she came back and said, yes, yes, we can do this interview in the garden. So myself and my colleague, James Anderson, the, the cameraman, stepped outside and, and started this interview. And one of the um, one of the scientists, Omar, looked out of the window and saw us and just said to said to Andrew, what are they doing out there? I've never been invited in there before. I've been here for 10 years. I've been coming here and they've never invited me into the garden. <laughs> so it was, it was really amazing how much that just kind of opened up the relationship with these amazing ladies. One could imagine this program with, um, without your conversation being in it, with just you doing links and things like that. But you, you, you decided that you would include your own conversation. I have to say, I think it works very well. But why did, why did you decide to do that? Um, I think part of it was to sort of um, to, to open up the... Um, to make people feel like they were being invited in too, because I think... Part of what I was so fascinated um, about this whole story and that I found so captivating about this trip was that we were invited in and that the, the, the sisters were so, so interesting and lived such a very different life from anything I've experienced and but we're we're so kind and so open and it was really interesting talking to them and they were they were very they were just very friendly and very kind to us and I really wanted to and I think I'm probably speaking a bit for Andrew here because you know he's he was the brains behind how this how this final program was really structured and how it was put together you know he's such a brilliant producer um but i think we wanted to to have that inclusion to kind of invite the listener in you know walk up the stairs with us meet these amazing women have be part of this conversation feel like you're you're kind of with us on that journey because that's and and that's the beauty of radio as well you can kind of take people in and give them an image in their mind of really being part of that story. Vic, thank you very much indeed for uh, taking the time to explain uh, the, the, the background to this programme. Congratulations, it's a great programme. Thank you so uh, much. I am really proud of it. Thank you very much indeed. It's my absolute pleasure. I could prattle on about this for, um, for hours. <laughs>
And uh, that was uh, Victoria Gill, science correspondent for the BBC, talking about her programme, Sisters of the Sacred Salamander. And it's available uh, right now uh, on the BBC Radio 4 uh, website. Uh, you're listening to Love and Science on uh, BCFM 93.2 uh, or bcfmradio.com. Always fantastic to have your company. And uh, I'm joined this week uh, by our regular presenter, uh, Hannah Little. And um, no Andrew this week. He's uh, away, I think, in Denmark or somewhere. That's, that's what he's claiming anyway. Uh, who knows Who knows what he's up to? Some, some, some secret activity. But he'll be back with us again uh, next week. Um, now, uh, we're looking at stories in the news, science in the news, science behind the news, and so on and so forth. And um, we're told by the Bank of England that the new £50 note... I mean, I, I don't know about you, Hannah. I mean, I'm just awash with £50 notes. On you, open my wallet. Just stuffed with fifty pound notes. Um, but uh, they're, what they're saying is, uh, Mark Carney, the the uh, governor of the Bank of England, has, has announced at the Science Museum that it's going to be a scientist. It's definitely going to be a scientist. And apparently, there are certain rules that they uh, apply uh, to who can be on a banknote, apart from the Queen. It, whoever is on a banknote, apart from the Queen, has to be dead. <laughs> so that's very important. And um, they've, uh, uh, they're taking nominations. So uh, uh, who do you think is a great scientist? You know, it's got to be a great scientist. And uh, it can be anybody who works in any field of science, including astronomy, biology, biotechnology, chemistry, engineering, mathematics, medical research, physics, uh, technology, zoology, and presumably anything else that you could say uh, properly was science. And uh, they, they will consider it. And you have to sort of justify why you think you want these people. Um, Hannah, have you got... And if you were the governor of the Bank of England, you could say who goes on the next note, £50 note. Have you got any thoughts? Is this something you sit passionately thinking about? Well, yeah, because oh, it's a scientist, right? So immediately I was very excited. Yeah, um, it is good. Do they, is it the case that they have to be British or is it just enough that they might have lived and worked here? Ah, now I do not know that. I, I actually do not know the answer to that question. It's not in the in the report that I, I'm I'm looking at. Okay. Um, yeah. So so you might you might say somebody that's effectively adopted Britain or has subst- done substantial work here. My guess is they'd say you ought to you ought to be able to justify in some way that they are British, but I don't know that. That's just my guess. Yeah. Well, so who are you thinking of? Um, well, this is part of my preoccupation with with computers generally. Yeah, is that I've whittled it down to two. That and it's difficult in the in the field of computer science because most people who have been, um, I mean, very uh, influential in the field aren't dead yet. <laughs> yes, because uh, it's such a new it's still field, a, a very yeah. baby field. Yeah, yeah. But two people immediately came to mind, which were um, Ada Lovelace, yeah, um, and Alan Turing. Yeah, yeah. I think he'd be marvelous as well. Absolutely, um, and and of course, both of those people. Uh, have changed the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we, you and I are both looking at computer screens now. I've got my laptop next to me. Um, uh, almost everything we've done today, uh, work-wise, has been connected to computer activity. And without either of those people, we probably wouldn't have uh, the world that we have now. Yeah. 
Yeah. So let's just remind people about Ada Lovelace. It was, it was Ada Lovelace Day if, uh, uh, very recently. Well, like a month ago now. Yeah, it was about a month ago, and we celebrated uh, uh, her day on, on this show. If you say to people randomly, this is my guess, if you were to say to people randomly, who do you think wrote the first computer program? Or, design, or came up with the idea of, of uh, the algorithm, people would say, oh, I guess it's some guy in Silicon Valley. They wouldn't think of Ada Lovelace. Well, yeah. Yeah, I unless probably, they knew. I probably run in very weird circles. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but she did. She, she was the first person, I'm, I'm right on this, yeah. aren't I, to, d- to design a, um, um, a pattern, you know, effectively um, a, a pattern, to, a program, and that we call an algorithm, to make a computer work. Yeah. Uh, it was theoretical, I believe, because the computer that had been built by Charles Babbage yeah. or designed was never built uh, in, in working condition in his lifetime. But she said, if you're going to, she worked with him and said, if you're going to make this thing, um, it can be made incredibly adaptable. And she came up with this idea of programs. Yeah. Just astonishing. Lord Lord Byron's daughter, um, I don't think he ever was allowed to see her by uh, her mother. Uh, But she inherited a lot of his personality and, uh, uh, um, and she was super smart and super influential. Alan Turing... Much more recent. Yeah. Um, I know he's got a street named after him in uh, Manchester. Does he? <laughs> he does, Alan Turing Way. Brilliant. Um, but, of course, uh, he's... What do, what do you know uh, uh, about what, what he did, why, he, why you would justify why he was on your £50 note? Um, well, so I suppose he's most famous for uh, cracking the Enigma Code during World War II. Um <laughs> Uh, but he's also been quite influential in the film, uh, in the field of, of artificial intelligence and what we think about in terms of intelligence, um, uh, and also in, in information theory. So he's he's been influential in, in lots of different strands of computer science. Um, but I guess the thing that that would make him most notable to the British public is is his efforts during the Second World War. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting character. Suffered uh, very badly because he was famously uh, gay at a time when it was actually illegal. That seems incredible now, doesn't it? But it's actually illegal. And he's he's um, he uh, uh, tragically committed suicide um, in the in the wake of of uh, his um, uh, accusation and and so on. Very yeah. very very sad. Um, Anyway, to chirpier things, um, my nomination actually would be Stephen Hawking. And the reason is that I think if if around about now we're going to issue a £50 note and we're going to put a British scientist on it, I think he is completely um, without comparison. And he's he's one of the... Well, he's not completely without comparison. He is a Newton... He 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 he's, he's one of those people who's who, who's up there with um, those people who have completely revolutionised the way we understand the universe. I think. Yeah. And um, uh, also an extraordinarily inspirational character. Yeah. 
because as well as his contribution to science itself, yeah. he was a, a, a giant within the field of science communication yes. and what he did to the, for the public understanding of science. Yes. And, and was, I, would, I would call him a national treasure in the sense of his, just his renown and, and, and how people thought of him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I, th- I think in the end there are lots and lots of worthy people, but that's, that's where I'd want to go. But we'll be interested to see. Uh, there's a committee that's been formed with uh, quite a few scientists on it, and we'll uh, we'll see what they recommend. Now, there's another another weird story. I've got. To, I'm going to uh, uh, pre uh, do a sort of prologue to this by saying um, about two. Three years ago, I was on a train. My family laugh at me because I always talk to people on trains. And I'll, I'll, come, I'll come home and i say, I had a really good conversation with, uh, with somebody I met on, on, on a train. And um, I'd, I'd, I met this elderly uh, fellow, and I was, we got into talking about what he did. And he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm helping, um, I'm working on the kilogram. I said, what, what do you mean you're working on the kilogram? He said, oh, well, I'm part of a committee. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of, um, uh, we're, we're thinking about how you can maintain the kilogram. And that was the first time I thought about this peculiar problem that we have these standards, don't we? We've got, we've got meters, we've got kilograms and so on and so forth. But imagine how we have those things we have them because somewhere in the world in this case paris there's a kilogram it's a weight which is exactly a kilogram to umpteen decimal points and it sits it's made of um, actually it says in the article i was looking at i i noticed what it was made of it's made of uh, platinum iridium two two metals so a platinum iridium um what do you call them? Uh, mixture. I'll, um, I can't remember. There's a word you use. Uh, it's just gone completely out of my alloy? head. Alloy? Uh, thank you. Alloy. The word I know very well. It just went completely out of my head. Platinum iridium cylinder. And um, they have to clean it super carefully. It's got to be kept at a certain temperature. It's kept in a vacuum and all of that. And even if you, you look after it incredibly carefully, then atoms get knocked off it. And it starts to degrade. And you have this weird problem that I hadn't thought about before, which is how do you make sure that a kilogram, the kilogram standard is still a kilogram? You know, if, you, if somebody somewhere in the world wants to go and say, oh, I've just got to check that my scales are properly um, uh, um, to do, uh, matched with, with the actual kilogram, you've got to maintain your kilogram. So anyway, this story is all about... Um, how they propose to solve this. Is this, is this something you've, you've ever thought about? I know, I know it's a weird thing, this idea of maintaining your standard. You've got to, you've got to maintain your standard. I was it? aware of the problem, but I can't, for the life of me, remember how anyone was proposing to solve it. Yeah. But I yeah. guess that if they've got a whole team of it, them working on it, then it's not... <laughs> It's yeah. okay that I don't know how to solve it. I mean, I wonder how they did it years ago. Apparently, um, it was... Um, Napoleon, who decided that the world should be divided up into uh, kilometres. And so the metre is kind of based on the average stride of a person. Well, whether Presumably at that time they um, had a metre stick somewhere, which they kept, and they probably didn't realise how the you know, bits slowly but surely get knocked off the end of a, a metre stick. You know, it's, it's, it's a very modern problem because we're now so precise. 
I thought a meter was based on the distance from the equator to the North Pole. Yeah. And it's something like one one millionth or something. Yeah, it is. But they wanted to approximate uh, the stride of a human uh-huh. okay. as, as the basic unit that yeah. they use. So I think I think you're right. It's so many hun- uh, um, so many thousand um, uh, kilometers that exactly yeah. account for the the uh, diameter of the Earth. Yeah, or the the circumference. I think it's the circumference of the Earth. But yeah. Anyway. That was a Napoleonic idea. Anyway, back to our story. Um, There's uh, uh, a lot of work has been done saying, basically, it's too much trouble having this kilogram, which is going to degrade. Whatever we do, it's going to no longer be the original kilogram that we put there. So we need something a bit uh, better. And so um, uh, somebody called uh, Brian Kibble, the late Brian Kibble, invented the basic compen- uh, basic concepts of, of the device that's going to replace the... Um, the alloy alloy uh, in in Paris, and it works by measuring the electric current that's required to produce an electromagnetic force equivalent to the gravitational force acting on a mass. In other words, it's looking at if you if you could replicate the force of a kilogram by using electrical or electromagnetic uh, currents. You know what what would that be? And so that's how that's how they've got round it. Gosh. Yes, <laughs> and, it, and and I'm really glad that people sit around thinking about this because although it seems quite, you think, well, why, you know, you could even think of this as a trivial problem, but actually, it's an incredibly serious problem in a world in which we rely on um, accuracy. You're listening to uh, Love and Science with me, Malcolm Love and uh, Hannah Little. Now, one of the stories uh, that's in uh, the uh, news at the moment is apparently Asian elephants are very good at maths. It's a a story that uh, has come out on UPI, the the news service. And um, apparently there's a study that provides first experimental evidence that non-human animals have cognitive characteristics partially identical to human counting. Um, and uh, it's, this is a story about um, an Asian elephant. Now, she has a name. Uh, it's Orthi. I, I, I'm not entirely sure how you'd pronounce it, but I think it's something like Orthi or Ortai. And um, scientists in Japan have attempted to uh, replicate results of a previous, a previous numerical competence experiment done using a 14-year-old Asian elephant. She's called Ortai, as I've said, uh, as the test subject. Um, they first first problem that you've got when you're trying to find out if an animal can count is you've got to teach it to uh, respond to whatever technology you're going to apply. So they, they trained her to use a touch screen. <laughs> that must have been very interesting, teaching a 14-year-old elephant to use a touch screen without crushing it. Um, but there we go. Once uh, she was trained, they gave her some um, uh, judgment tasks about numbers. And so... Um, this is this is what I understand she had to do. They were trying to figure out whether she could tell the difference between effectively big objects and the number of objects that there were. So if you if you were to show her, say, three large bananas and ten small bananas, could she tell that there were more 
small bananas than there were large bananas, you know, mm-hmm. which it, we, and the answer is yes. Cool. Uh, it, it turns out that elephants are really smart um, with numbers. Can they tell the difference between 10 small bananas and 11 small bananas? Now, that is a good question. But, because um, I know crows have a thing where they can do one, two, three, but anything else they kind of perceive as many. Yes. So I wonder if... Which, of course, lots of, um, uh, uh, lots of peoples have done that. There, 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 there are studies where, where there are groups of people um, who, who don't have a language for anything more than two. So but they can so still I, perceive the difference between a But they can still ten. perceive, yes. Yeah, true. So True. language is they different just don't from talk what about you can it. perceive, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And, and, um, but I, I, I think this is fantastic that, that, that they can do this. Actually, I have, it was on a BBC wildlife programme, I have seen um, a, a gorilla uh, touching a screen um, where it was asked to, dis, uh, to pick the smallest of a number or the largest of numbers that were flashed up. So it would be, you know, um, a, so this kind of partially answers your question about animals, that there is an animal that can do this, the gorilla, yeah. at very high speed can actually, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll touch a group because there's more in that particular group than there is in another. Yeah. And they'll pop up in fractions of a second and it'll go, right, uh, yeah, there's more in that group than in that group. So yeah. that, that's amazing. But um, there, is, there is a, a story, this is a true story, isn't it, about a, a horse. Clever Hands. Called Clever Hands. Yeah, and they didn't have touch screens in those days <laughs> when, when Clever Hands was being tested. No. So this was a horse where you could ask the horse um, simple arithmetic, what's one plus two, two plus two, and the horse would count out the number with its hooves. And so if you'd say what's two plus two, Clever Hands would be able to do four um, right. Hooves, <coughs> yeah. uh, uh, or stamps, as yeah. it were, and they couldn't work out how this this horse was doing it. Um, so they um, they varied whether the horse could see the person asking the question, um, and because he taught he toured around, didn't he? We went to sort of like yeah. the, the palaces, palaces and things <laughs> like that. And I think he performed. Horse. Didn't he perform for Napoleon? And, and I have all, no idea. All those kinds of. <laughs> I'm obviously obsessed with Napoleon this yeah. week. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they were really struggling to work out how this horse could do it. And in the end, they worked out um, that what what the horse couldn't do was count or do simple arithmetic. But what it could do is look at um, the people around its behaviour and their express expressions of, of, of antis- anticipation. Yeah. And as the horse was... Um, getting close to the number of, of stamps that were the correct number, yeah. everybody's face would light up and they were going to be like, oh, the horse is going to do it and it's going to stop and it's going to be amazing. And then the, the horse would just stop um, because it would see that everybody was getting excited and so it would just stop stamping because it had just learned that it got adoration and, and, and positive feedback uh, when it stopped stamping. Yeah. So it wasn't anything about was being able to book. count. It was about um, being able to perceive um, body language, which uh, is also like an incredible incredible skill, right, for it is. It is because they're no, uh, they're well known for being uh, uh, very sensitive animals, aren't they? Well, anyway, talking about very sensitive people, <laughs> we've got John Ford in the studio. He wondered what was going to 
going to come then, didn't none t- you? None taken. Hi, John. <laughs> John. It's great, great to have you in the, in the studio. Don't, yeah. don't forget to uh, stay tuned after the news because uh, John Ford is getting uh, Bristol home. And uh, have you had a good week? I've had a very good week. I missed you last week, so I wasn't yeah. here. But, uh, yeah, yeah, we had a good week. We were in prison last week. Were you? Well, that's why, I was, that's why I wasn't here. I guess these things happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were recording something in a prison, which was really fascinating. Yeah, it must have been. Oh, I would love to hear yeah. about that some, some, sometime, well, John. All so. you need to do is listen to the old Gitson hit show from last week, and you'll hear the whole show, which Excellent. is uh, absolutely fantastic. Excellent. A very good tip. Now, is there anything you think we left off this week's show? <laughs> yeah, my glasses. I can't read Oh, <laughs> no, it's Do you fine. want to borrow mine? No, 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 no. I, I can mean, return the compliment. Yes, you can. Yeah. No, you, you missed out all sorts of things. Um, for example, this day in 1992, um, um, they discovered a chemical, chemical evidence from 5,000-year-old beer, which was found... Uh, at uh, Godin Tape, I think it is, in uh, Zagros, uh, in the mountains of Iran. Um, and they, they dated the, this chemical, and they re- discovered that the chemical elements were, in fact, beer, which um, <laughs> was, was evidence that, that these guys were drinking beer 5,000 years ago. Wow. Bearing in mind this is a country that doesn't drink anymore. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. absolutely incredible, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. um uh, when we do these various archaeological yeah. uh, uh, finds, they're turning up all the time that, in fact, human civilization has done yeah. things for much longer than we thought. It, it is a day of discovery, actually, this day. That was 1992. This day in 1963, archaeologists uh, found Viking ruins in Newfoundland, predating Columbus by 5,000 years. So, um, yeah, the Vikings actually discovered it, not us, or not Columbus, rather. Really, very so, uh, intrapid people, the Vikings. Well, well, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. This day in 1922, Howard Carter excavated a further 11 steps, exposed by, or uh, exposing a large part of um, what would be the tomb of Tutankhamun. It was um, actually one of his labourers who, who found the first step. So he took, ah. the, he took the credit, found the, uh, the other 11. Oh, uh, yes. So uh, t- this date is a date for discovering things. All right. There you go. I like it. Of course, uh, that was very much associated with the famous curse, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Carmen's tomb. Yeah. Anyway, well, look, as I say, don't forget to stay tuned uh, to BCFM because uh, after the news, John's getting uh, Bristol home. Um, from Hannah Little and me, have yourselves a very good evening. It's been great to have your company, and don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of Love and Science. Science.